You're listening to the five games of a special series of the Games Industry Dobbies podcast. I'm UK editor James Batchelor. Every month, I'll be joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games. Their first, their latest, and three of their choice. The conversation not only covers the games themselves, but also the ways that those games demonstrate how the industry has changed over the years. The series is going to explore development, composers, PR, artists, writers, journalists, publishers, marketers. We're going to be talking to people from every aspect of the industry if I can track them down. Um, last month, we spoke to Team 17 CEO and owner Debbie Bestwick. Before that, we spoke to Thomas Was Alone developer Mike Bithell. If you subscribe to the podcast and scroll back through the feed, you can find those episodes. But today, we are speaking to Guha Bala of Velen Studios. Guha, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, James. And um, for those who may not know you, which I'm hoping is a minimal of people, I'm trying to pick very high-profile guests for this series. A um, little bit about yourself, a little bit about, about your background, if you please. Uh, hey, I, uh, I've been making video games my whole life. I started uh, uh, making them uh, with my brother, Karthik, uh, when we were both in high school. I was in ninth grade. He was in 10th grade. And uh, we came up with a name for our first studio. It's called Vicarious Visions. Uh, and... Uh, First started in our parents' basement, um, then grew it over time, actually. Uh, it took us forever to make our first game. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and uh, we were based in upstate New York because my brother went to school at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. In any case, time went on. Uh, we did a lot of games over time. Many of them were with Activision. We sold our studio to Activision in 2005, continued to lead it until 2016. We had a 25-year run, and we started again. And now I'm at Valen Studios and Valen Ventures. And uh, for Valen Ventures, we invest in other game companies or game technologies. We love to work with entrepreneurs. Valen Studios, new mission. Uh, it's to discover new ways of play, playing, uh, essentially, so we can go and find the next Guitar Hero or the next Skylanders or the next Wii Fit. Uh, and so it really gives us license to experiment and play. Mm. Uh, so that's what I do now. Well, it's, um, it's interesting, like the the, the theme there, because of of your five games, three in particular definitely kind of fit in with that. Um, I was kind of preparing questions, two or three questions per title, um, but the, the sheer number of of industry trends that we cover just in your five your collection of five games alone, uh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. So I'm going to launch straight in with your first game. So first game is Synergist. This was released mm -hmm. for PC in 1996, developed by Vicarious Visions and published by 21st Century Entertainment. I believe it was a point-and-click adventure with digitized actors and full motion video. Um, perhaps a little bit on the origins then. Like, how did this game come to be? Like, What was your role on it? Because like, this is the first game mm -hmm. that you guys worked on. So this is a pretty uh, <laughs> awesome experience of making a game without really knowing anything about making games. Uh, it was the first game that my brother actually and I actually made. And throughout our childhood, we'd love to do things like um, make comic books, uh, shoot short films, uh, other kinds of creative work. And uh, we met an entrepreneur. Uh, we lived in Rochester, New York at the time. It's a, a city in western New York, home to Eastman Kodak and Xerox and Bosch and Loam and other companies. Uh, we met a guy who quit his job at Kodak. Uh, and started a business uh, uh, to create sound cards for PCs. He invented the Gravis Ultrasound. And um, 
when we were upgrading our computer, we went and saw him and he said, hey, what do you guys like to do? And we said, oh, we like to make things. Uh, we like video games. He said, well, you should make one. Well, how do we do that? We're just kids. At that time, there was no, there's no Unity. There's no tutorials. There's no game institutions. There's nothing, no courses online. It's back in 1990. Uh, and uh, so... Um, he said, well, that shouldn't stop you. So he handed us a Turbo C book. So it's really dating us. And Autodesk Animator. He said, well, this should help you make the art. This should help you program it. And he said, okay, well, how hard could that be? So we started learning how to do it. Uh, it turned out it was really hard. But, uh, you know, the amazing thing was, in terms of the process of making, was, you know, as interesting, if not more interesting, than actually playing a lot of the games that we played. So while we're inspired by playing the games that other people made, that some of our favorites uh, from the early uh, from the eighties and early nineties at that time, um, the actual act of making it, coming up with the storylines, doing the storyboarding, trying to figure out which engine to use, and then no engine's perfect, so then how to modify it. Those are all really fascinating. Now, my role was uh, the same as my brother's role, which is we have to figure things out. We had to figure things out in two dimensions. One is how do we make the damn thing? How do we you know, get our arms around what we want to make and how we make it. But it was also how to get other people to help us with it as well. Mm. Um, you know, it turns out artists, if they want to do professional art, want to be paid. So I used to check coats at an art gallery and work for tips. Um, I cleaned glass in a lab. And these savings went into basically piecework that we commissioned for artists for that game. And I was the art director. So I learned perspective drawing. I learned uh, how to be able to animate. We set up, we went to a fabric store and bought fabric to create a blue screen or a green screen in our basement. We brought construction clamp lights to the lighting and then painstakingly click by clip, click captured every frame of every animation and composited them in Autodesk Animator for the movement in the game. So when you, if you can find it on YouTube, you'll know that those are pieces that we, we made. Every animation frame was, there was nothing automated at that time. So. Uh, was manually done, and um, it took us a good. Uh, well, it was started. The early part of it was started at the end of 1990. It took us till 1996 to get it out, because we were just trying to figure out everything, you mm. know. And um, and that was super interesting. You know, it started with you know, a lot of games that we see these days. You know, they have high aspirations. They have a hundred different features. Um, they're scope rich uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, the error is to think that scope equals value. Of course, as a kid starting out, uh, the way to write a novel is to write a lot of pages, you know, for example. <laughs> uh, and likewise, with synergies, it was like, hey, write a story, make it as big as you possibly can, take people on an adventure that's amazing, uh, that even uh, we wouldn't expect it to go on. So we made up all kinds of stuff for the story, which is frankly frightening. And then we became the actors as well. So we video, video capped each other, got all of our friends, hired some actors, all of that. Along the way, we met uh, um, a firm, 21st Century Entertainment. They actually had started building a business. It was a UK-based company. Uh, started building a business, um, making pinball games with dice, you know, dice of Sweden fame hmm. and Battlefield fame. Their earliest games for dice were these pinball games, Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies. They desperately wanted to do more than pinball games. So along we come and say, hey, we've got this amazing adventure game you should support. And we signed a deal with them. Um, you know, in our first year of our second year of college, we finally published it. And it taught us two things. You know, one is that the game that you make five years ago is not the game that people want today. 
So, extended <laughs> cycles have disadvantages. It's also that your expectations change, what you know changes. And so, the gr bigger you make a game, the more likely, by the time you're done with it, there's lots of things that don't quite fit with where you think consumers really are, or gamers really are, or even it's hard to keep a tight creative vision. The game was actually pretty good, I would say, you know, given all of our constraints. Um, and certainly it was a pretty good indie title, uh, you know, at the time. Um, but uh, didn't do well commercially. Like it had some, it, I mean, actually it said we got a call in a couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago, rather, of um, someone who'd found the final Easter egg in Synergist. <laughs> and this now, you know, this is, it's a long time later, right? It's 24 years later. Someone finally found it, and they said, hey, they wrote to us to claim their reward. And so we dug up from it. We still have some of the initial paintings in our basement <clears throat> and drawings and that kind of thing. And so we sent them a, a care package and talked to, that, uh, talked to them and that kind of thing. So it has its core following. But uh, it wasn't a huge commercial success, and that's when we started learning, hey, look, you can't just make your creative dream. That is the most important element. I mean, the creative dream is really the most important element. But you can't stop there as a developer. You also have to think about, huh, where is the commercial future for this thing? Mm. And it started, us on a, on, it started us on a track for thinking about both. Um, the folks that get too enamored of just the commercial futures quickly make pretty ordinary games. Uh, and ordinary games are a good way of going out of business. Uh, and the people that are too enamored of pure creative pursuits without a notion that you need to make it for an audience big enough to pay for it, well, they don't get to do it uh, they, uh, for as long as they want. They don't have creative and financial independence. So that was sort of a very early lesson for us. And so we tried to apply that, you know, where we went. Hmm. I, there, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I, mean, I, I know you said you like you made the story as big as you can, but 24 years for someone to find the last secret—that's a that's a pretty big story. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. And in those point-and-click adventures, they were such uh, designer-driven puzzles. You can make them as esoteric and as quirky as possible, mm. uh, but uh, there's always somebody willing to find it. Is there's the amazing thing? And. Um, so let's look a little bit, like, go back to the origins there, like, because I find it fascinating the the choices you made there in your first project are interesting. In that, as you say, like there weren't these ready-made engines. You didn't have Unity. You didn't have Unreal. You didn't have asset stores with all these, um, you know, ready-made, you know, artwork and sprites and all this sort of stuff. Like you, you were going from scratch. The idea of going for like an FMV or at least a kind of a, a video captured game for your first title, because this is mid nineties or the you know, early nineties. Like FMV games were out; they were bigish. But like my my understanding, and I have to confess, I was I was a little younger back then. I don't, I wasn't playing FMV games, but my understanding is they never really took off to the extent that the, that people thought. Like I remember, I I remember there was there was a Star Trek one. Um, it was a Star Trek Borg. Which has a uh, you know John Delancey back as Q and all that. And it's like, and even that, I my understanding is wasn't a huge hit. It's like right, this is this is a Star Trek game done by Paramount with the actors on the sets of the show. Mm -hmm. So why on earth did you go for like an FMV thing like in India with a makeshift blue screen? Well, I think uh, there are a couple of reasons. One is we made the game that we wanted to make, so. You know, we, we didn't we didn't have any commercial lessons. We didn't really know what anything sold. We didn't have research. We didn't have we didn't know how to make a game, but we also didn't have any experience commercially uh, in doing this sort of thing. So we said, "Hey, 
I think we can figure out how to do it. Let's just do that. So that's what we did. Um, so that that's probably the cleanest answer. We just didn't know that it was going to be, one, as hard as it was, uh, and two, that um, it would be sort of a commercially super crowded space. Now, um, we, you know, basically we were making the game because we loved text, ad uh, text adventures that came out of Sierra at the time or point-and-click adventures that came out of Sierra at the time. And actually, Access Software made a series of them that were really good. So the Tex Murphy Adventures and uh, uh, Under Killing Moon and you know, th these kind of games were a bit of an inspiration for us. Um, and so that's probably the reason why we made it. Now, there's an advantage and disadvantage to that. You can spend all the time making this game and wake up to an audience that doesn't is playing something else. That's sort of like making an undifferentiated battle royale today. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean... People are still doing it. Yeah. And the audiences aren't showing up, you know? Uh, and uh, you can't even give away free games for, uh, you know, the people to play, for everybody to show up and play. So, you know, one is that, uh, you know, that's one consequence. The other consequence is sometimes you have to take a risk, right? I mean, it, you have to take a risk around saying a good game can break through. Mm -hmm. Like all the business strategy in the world uh, can't get, and obstacles in the world can't get in the way of a real creative breakthrough. And if you really knew all the odds that are stacked up against you to make a great game in that environment, you probably just wouldn't even get out of bed every day. Hmm. You'd say, let me make the next sequel of XYZ and that kind of thing. And that's just not how we want to look at it. Fair enough. Uh, no, you often hear people like just getting caught in the sequel trap and not wanting to be that. So yeah, no, I can understand that. Um, one other thing I, interesting I read about Synergist was uh, that it was a Europe-only release. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, uh, 21st Century was a um, uh, European, uh, well, it was a UK publisher. And uh, they first produces, produced the units and sent it to Europe. Um, it had a small uh, division in the United States. Um, and the reason, actually, we met 21st Century is they were based in Rochester. Uh, as well in the same town that we were so it was like wow they were right down the street from us and um, so I, I just don't think they had enough distribution reach to get out here for us we thought it was Christmas basically we had hey there's a publisher who's going to get out our game we can you know finally you know we have a way to get into the marketplace you know for this and so even though it was just a European um, you know mainly European only release actually I don't know if there was a secondary way that it made it into made it into the United States later on hmm. um uh, you know, it was still a great experience for us. It was our first commercial title. But I guess I, the reason I find that interesting is obviously like the the difference now in terms of uh, releasing worldwide. Like mm -hmm. how how the assumption is, or at least the general business sense is, like you release in as many markets mm -hmm. as you can, or at least mm -hmm. as many markets as make sense for your game to reach right. as big as an audience as possible. And even you know, even back then, like in the nineties, like releasing in one market, Europe, is limiting your release. I guess like what are the differences like between then and now in terms of mm -hmm. how difficult it is to release worldwide? Well, I think there are a couple different things. One is that. Uh, um, Back then, the markets were much more fragmented. Uh, the capital costs were also lower. Um, and to, to get a game uh, finished, uh, how much you'd spend on marketing it, and those sorts of things. So because of those two factors, you'd have some titles that'll only, only ship in France. There were these beautiful story-driven titles that were 
really identified as this is suitable for a French market, but not necessarily elsewhere. Um, and that, that phenomenon continued. You know, you had economic simulators that would just basically be for um, ducks. It, it would be for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, you know, that kind of thing. And you'd find these geographic oddities like that. Um, and, uh, you know, occasionally you can find them today. But today there's big differences. You know, throughout North America, the distribution channels are relatively well consolidated. Uh, digital distribution means that global audiences can get day one release everywhere, right? Uh, and even in Europe, you have two or three entities outside of the major publishers that can actually uh, do a simultaneous launch in every market, uh, like uh, the Embracer guys and so forth. And so the fragmentation and, you know, finally, because the capital costs are so, so much higher, like that first game, Synergist, I think it cost us maybe less than $100,000 to make uh, total. Um, and the marketing wouldn't have been much more than that, I don't think. So that's very different than today, where if you look at most games, outside of the most, so let's say, AAA games, I mean, you just can't afford to release in a single market, so you have to go global. Fair enough. Um, we have still got four games to go, and uh, there's a mm -hmm. lot of discussion around these, so I might move us on to your second game. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, mm -hmm. the Game Boy Advance version, released in right. 2001, developed by Vicarious Visions and published by Activision. Um, mm -hmm. I'll be honest, until you sent this in your choices, I forgot it was on Game Boy Advance. Right? <laughs> so this is a, a really interesting one. It's actually the one that put Vicarious Visions first on the map. Uh, it wasn't the first game that Vicarious made, obviously, but uh, it was the one that really gained... Um, sort of a critical as well as commercial. It was our first, I would say, critical and commercial blockbuster. Hmm. Uh, Tony Hawk, it was the first BAFTA that we won uh, as well. It won, it was uh, one mobile game of the year when that became, during the first time that BAFTA had a mobile game of the year uh, category. Uh, and, um, you know, the big deal there was that, uh, you know, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 had come out uh, from Neversoft. Um, it was really a surprise uh, you know, hit. I mean, I don't think anybody thought it would have the performance that it did, but a lot of things came um, into clarity right around that. You know, Tony Hawk did his first 720, I believe, uh, and uh, that made a bit of a cultural pop. Uh, at the same time, the game itself was just phenomenal. But we got the early kits, the dev kits, the, the uh, proto boards or the single LCD for Game Boy Advance, and said, hey, what is a really interesting thing that we could do with this thing? The machine was still very limited in its calculating capabilities and so forth, fundamentally a 2D hardware. So I think there's a way to make all the 3D physics and gameplay for Tony Hawk come to life on the system. And we actually have a paper napkin with a parametric equations where we define sort of how we might approach this. Um, and we took our concept art and went to Activision. We had actually a relationship with Activision at that time as a third-party developer. We're doing some other uh, Marvel titles for them. I think we did Spider-Man GB, Game Boy Color the year prior for them. And uh, we saw Tony Hawk himself at, uh, at on the E3 show floor. We showed him the concepts. He thought it was pretty cool. And we met upstairs uh, at Activision. They said, give it a go. See what you could do. Uh, and we did. And this thing was freaking amazing. You know, Tony Hawk from GBA played like the console game. It was playable on a handheld for the very first time. 
And uh, I think it uh, took everybody by surprise. It took Nintendo by surprise. Wow, we didn't think this machine could do any 3D, <laughs> 3D computation. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we actually did um, uh, render to texture for sprites. So the actual, what was rendered on the screen was, uh, it was a 2D map with just a 3D skater on it. And all the geo is 2D, but we use parametric equations to simulate 3D physics on it and 3D collision on it. And um, the reproduction actually was really successful. It was a top-selling third-party title, uh, I think, on GBA for a while. Uh, and it came out for launch of the system as well. Hmm. So it showed a few things. One is that we could take a system and turn it on its head. Uh, we could take an experience that nobody expects to be available uh, and give them something familiar yet surprising. And when people, when we talk about it, people are like, yeah, I don't really know how to visualize that. You have to hand it to them. So playing is believing hmm. uh, and that kind of thing. It did really well. It did really well. And we're, we're super proud of it. I, I, do, I remember seeing screenshots. Again, this is this is kind of a difference of... Um, that, you know, then and now, like my ex experience of games, you couldn't just go on YouTube and watch videos of it because the internet wasn't as about well, YouTube didn't exist and the, the internet wasn't as forthcoming with game videos as it is today. So my That's memory right. of Tony Hawk 2 on GBA was screenshots in N64 magazine and looking and thinking, right. oh, okay, yeah, so they've kind of, kind of done like an isometric version. Don't really know how that works. That's not for me. But now hearing you describe that for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, that sounds like that was a lot more advanced than, than I expected. And that does not come across in a screenshot in a magazine. It's, uh, you know, it's so true. Like anything that's, um, uh, you know, most things that are kind of fundamentally new play patterns, they don't have an immediate analog. They're pretty impossible to describe with a text, you know, like in an article, it's really hard to describe them. And it's super hard to even convey with media assets. It's sort of like you need to hand over the controller and go play it. Hmm. Like, can you imagine if someone said, "We Fit"? You know, let me show you a PowerPoint about We Fit, and I'm going to get you really excited about it. Or you, could, <laughs> you couldn't say that with with guitar. Or I'm going to show you this note highway with these things coming down. You think people are really going to buy millions of this thing? And they're like, "No, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't expect any of that." And you go go on down the list of the pitches of the things that really stuck for new categories that haven't been visualized before. Mm. Uh, and it's really the playing is believing. It's so hard to convey it in conventional media. Once it's sort of established and you know what the expectation is, then you can do these things because people kind of have a whole understanding that goes along with it. But but I think Tony Hawk is one of those things, one of those phenomena. We were helped, though, because the GBA was such a big hit. People are looking for good content, mm. uh, and this was one of the titles available for that. GBA certainly like that. So GBA was actually my my first handheld. I never got a, an original Game Boy. Um, so GBA was like my first, and therefore I think by extension the first console that was mine. I owned it. I bought it myself. Not that my you know my parents had bought it for us for me and my sister. Um, right. So I, I loved my GBA. I thought it was such a such a fantastic little device. Um, it's interesting because like this this ties in quite topically at the time of recording. I think it was last week or earlier this week, uh, Nintendo announced or confirmed that the 3DS has been discontinued, which mm -hmm. means effective. And I may be reading mu too much into this, but effectively that means the age of the Nintendo handhelds is over. Like from 1989, when they released the first Game Boy, we had the Game Boy, the Game Boy Advance, the DS, the 3DS, and then however many years back they integrated their hard their handheld and so and uh, consoles divisions 
to form one business unit and obviously they've concentrated on the switch and the switch is a handheld console home uh, yeah, hybrid i think mm-hmm. the fact that it's to me that the fact that it operates as a home console and it feels like it's positioned as a home console that becomes a handheld rather than the other way around so mm-hmm. beyond the switch Lite, 3ds mm-hmm. is going to is likely to be the last dedicated nintendo handheld system mm-hmm. so I guess I, let's talk a bit, let's talk a little bit then about just the rise and fall of handhelds. Like you know, as you say, like GBA mm-hmm. was a hit when it arrived. The Game Boy was amazing, um, mm-hmm. and the GBA went on to be succeeded by the DS, the 3DS, and so forth. Like handhelds were big business back then because you didn't have mobile phones. Like I think mobile gaming in 2001 hadn't advanced much further beyond Snake, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess yeah, like your your thoughts on like kind of. The, just the, the rise and fall of the handhelds. Well, I think that, um, you know, we have, we've had different uh, waves, you know, throughout our industry, like different kinds of platforms coming out with play patterns and so forth. Um, Nintendo had a knack of taking whatever technology available and reducing it to its sort of essential complexity. And uh, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, there are comp- companies like Nokia with Engage, they came out and said, well, everybody's going to leave their home. They leave their home. The thing that they'll always go back for is their phone. So why not make a phone and a, and a game system together? It turned out to be quite a complex device. I, I don't know if you remember the taco phone. I do uh, remember the taco day. phone. Yeah, just a little <laughs> sad visual. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the, the Atari, Atari brought out the Lynx. So there are a lot of different attempts to get uh, come into handheld space. And, of course, later on, you, you have... PSP and Vita and, you know, all of those sorts of things, too. But these guys had a way of saying, let's really drive down simplicity for what's really important for entertainment on the go. And they had that formula down for, I mean, for the the black and white Game Boy was a bit of a phenomenon, 10-year phenomenon. And really, Tetris was the perfect application for it. It was a black mm. and white LCD. Uh, so in sunlight, it was easy to use. It was pretty big, the, game, the initial Game Boy. Uh, but uh, but it was all optimized to give good battery life as well mm. uh, for what was available with the computing systems available at that time. Same thing with GBA or, or a Game Boy Color. With Game Boy Color came Pokemon, and it really gave the incentive to say, look, I mean, I want to take my device on the go. I want to be able to trade and do Pokemon bottles and other things like that with other players, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think the rise of handheld was really... Um, saying there is a place in the home for playing entertainment. That's where the NES is, the SNES is, and then PS1, etc. Um, but there's a whole other uh, place where, uh, where consumers want to play. We, we know all those venues, right? Because we use phones for those things at this point. <laughs> um, and uh, so that really took off in that, uh, in that period starting 1998 when the Game Boy Color came out. You know, mm. So the Game Boy Black and White came out 10 years earlier. It was like 1988 that came out. And they kind of did their major rev after a 10-year cycle on that, where it had pretty much lulled away uh, to get their foothold into color and, and into a new type of handheld device. Uh, and then they've done their successive generations, I think. They've been on a tear since, since then. There was a key insight, though, in the late cycle for the uh, 3DS um, uh, system, which was that uh, the phones had started displays, displacing a lot of casual games. Mm. So, you know, by 2011, we started seeing free-to-play 
uh, mobile games with good quality uh, mobile phones and displays and things like that. They've been out for a couple of years, right? iPhone came out in uh, 2007, I think. Uh, but, um, but they've been out for a couple of years. Uh, and so that really started supplanting the market for super casual sort of dedicated smaller systems. And so they saw an opportunity at that point to say, well, how do we bring these two concepts together where you can play a more in-depth, rich, uh, sort of HD quality experience on the go? Mm. And so that's, that's how sort of, I would say it's not, it's not so much a rise and fall. It's more like a rise and rise, except now you have to recognize other people coming in. Yeah. Uh, and other forms of play coming in, which is connected mobile devices and that kind of thing, smart devices. Mm. So, um, you know, these things happen in an industry, but today I would say um, I spend so much time on my Switch, you know, because I can't be in front of my TV, mm. uh, you know, all the time. So it, it plays a, it played a unique role then, it continues to play a unique role. The experiences are a little different. Yeah, I guess I, I, as much as I say I think of Switch as a home console, I primarily play mine in handheld mode. I think it's yeah. only it's only ever docked when I'm when I'm letting my son play it or I'm playing with my son. Like it it is primarily it's it's a handheld for me. Um, mm-hmm. I guess like, I I find it interesting because and, and again kind of tying to Tony Hawk uh, Tony Hawk two on the GBA, like throughout the history of handhelds, and this is at least this is the way I see it. Like you have games that are built for handheld that are. Mm-hmm best suited to a handheld experience in terms of that pick up and play you can drop it at any minute you can pick it up mm-hmm. at any minute um you know they, they just work better in a kind of a portable fashion the pokemon games are you know prime example because you can save it at any kind of moment and you can continue where mm-hmm. you were and you can take it to a friend's house and so forth um contrast that though with things like i remember having a monster monster hunter 2 Monster Hunter Freedom 2 on the PSP and mm-hmm. I don't think you could save whenever, like it had a sleep mode but you had to complete missions mm-hmm. before you could save I think the tutorial on cooking meat was like 40 minutes long or something <laughs> and uh, I remember playing it on the train home um, mm-hmm. I had charged up my, my, maybe I had 40 PSP, I had charged up my PSP on the on um, before getting the train home I played it, my 40 minute train ride home got off the station i was a four minute walk from the station as soon as i got home i got my psp out and the battery had died and that's it i'd failed like ouch yeah but this this was the thing like with psp in particular there have always been this attempt to bring a console experience to a handheld and not always mm-hmm. getting the balance right um and i think mm-hmm. nintendo always managed it so nintendo obviously made uh, super mario land was meant to be uh, a kind of a handheld version of Super Mario Brothers, or at least a handheld follow-up. Mm-hmm. Link's Awakening, I read, was um, originally going to be a, a Game Boy port of uh, Link to the Past, which mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. you know kind of evolved into its own game. Tony Hawk, and I do promise I am bringing this back to the topic. <laughs> Tony Hawk strikes me as like that was such a hit on console, and if I remember rightly, like this was certainly like the first or one of the first or one of the better, for, certainly from the sound of it, handheld versions. Like, how do you take? How do you distill? Uh, an experience that most people know and enjoy on a console and make mm-hmm. it something that works as a handheld proposition? Uh, I think that um, th- there's no simple answer to that because it's, it varies based on experience, but it's sort of a common thread where you, th- there was a period of time where people were like, hey, look, I mean, this is so great on console. Let me have the same experience for handheld. And um, sometimes that works. So, for example, uh, when we look at Breath of the Wild, um, you know, it really works on Switch, either in dock mode or a, or in handheld mode. So you'd mm-hmm. say, well, that, I mean, that, that formula actually works. But um, 
the differences come not so much from play uh, play habits. So, for example, some games are just uh, better to play with uh, sort of interrupt-driven. Uh, and those games naturally lend themselves to handhelds. And so you say, well, that's really more of a handheld game than a console game. Console games tend to be a little bit more involved, longer sort of mission runs and that kind of thing, longer um, periods of time before you hit save. Uh, uh, and so you don't usually see it going the other way, why, why Pokemon doesn't exist on console, for example, mm. except on Switch, right? But, you know, really it's <laughs> still intended as a portable game. Uh, it's it's uh, generally been a portable game. Uh, a lot of the differences, like what makes a successful handheld is got to do with the system balance on a portable system The uh, is, is very different than on a fixed unit like a console. So you could push a lot of graphics, a lot of memory, put a big hard drive. Um, you can have a, a big power brick as a power supply to uh, run the juice on your CPU because it takes a lot of power to run that. Whereas on a, on, a, on a mobile device or a portable device, you're always worried about uh, heating concerns on the CPU uh, and, and, and uh, the thermal properties there. You're worried about battery life and battery consumption, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and so where it doesn't really work is when you have a um, game that's extremely CPU intensive or GPU intensive that just doesn't translate well to the right system balance. You're fundamentally going to have two different propositions on a portable system than an HD console because the HD console can actually supply more power mm. and you can have a bigger, you just have a bigger chip and a bigger board. You don't have to miniaturize everything. So the thermal properties are just different. And so when you're trying to take a big game and just squash it into a little space, there's often a, often a lot, lot that's lost out. So that's, you know, you know for example, on... Um, PSP, for example, if you made a shooter on PSP, it's really difficult to do the number of draw calls mm. that you often need to be able to render a scene and render all the different sort of game logic and simulation and other things like that that you need to, to be able to simulate something like Call of Duty. It's really hard to do that. So you'd have other games like Splinter Cell that'll come out where you only ever see one or two enemies uh, at a time. Whereas Call of Duty is all about lots of enemies. <laughs> you know, you need that for the experience. And so this kind of going from big to small is actually a pretty unique journey. That's why sometimes you need to just think about it and say, well, that big HD experience belongs on an HD system. Let me just give it a rethink and see what is going to be an amazing experience for the handheld. And do I, then do I, do I want to make that? Hmm. So uh, that would be the sort of the, you know, for example, for Tony Hawk, the reason why we made it is not because Tony Hawk was very successful, therefore the same console game needs to be translated over. Let's figure out how to do that. It was more like, I think we can make a great Tony Hawk experience, despite the architectural choices on that system with this unique approach. Mm. So let's go make that. And so we built the prototype, and we showed the prototype. And we were like, wow, that's cool. I still have my Game Boy Advance. I now really want to track down a copy of this game and give it a go. <laughs> Oh, you got to try it. You need to try it. Gonna have to have we made a few of them after Tony Hawk 2. I think we did up. We did. Actually, we followed the handheld generations on that. I think we did three, four. Um, uh, Tony Hawk's American Wasteland. We call it Skateland for the DS. Uh, American Skateland for the DS was the first one to support Wi-Fi Connect and Wi-Fi and uh, multiplayer on on Nintendo DS, mm. along with Mario Kart. So it was a really good multiplayer experience, you know, on that. Um, and then I think we also did Tony Hawk's Downhill Jam. So we did a series of those products. 
half of them was on the inside of Activision. So we sold a, uh, sold our studio to Activision while we were working on that series. Nice. Um, well, let's continue your uh, your relationship with Activision with uh, your next game, which uh, was a pretty big hit for them. Guitar Hero 3 Legends of Rock, uh, released for Wii in 2000, so 2007, so you guys did the Wii version, um, again, developed by Vicarious Visions, published by Activision. Um, so yeah, like, how did you guys end up play, uh, making the, the Wii version specifically? So we met, um, so by then we had quite the reputation for doing uh, Nintendo-type products, um, you know, dating from our Game Boy Advance days. Uh, we'd been doing them for years. Uh, we have... We had been on every Nintendo system launch since um, uh, 2001, actually, and um, uh, we had uh, we had done at the time that we started that project in 2006. We had done the uh, for Wii launch. We had done a Marvel Ultimate Alliance game. I think it was Marvel Ultimate Alliance, the first one, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, we developed, you know, so we had this reputation within Activision and, and, and in general in the industry of being sort of really passionate about um, Nintendo hardware and adapting games to it and so forth. We also met in 2006, we met Charles Huang, uh, uh, who is, uh, and, and Kai Huang, who they're, they're a brother team that uh, had founded Red Octane. And uh, they had the initial insight that, hey, games with peripherals. Uh, have real power, and they, they had this business in Red Octane of uh, almost wanting to be the Netflix of games, renting out accessories and hardware and stuff, and they noticed that their Dance Dance Revolution products came back all battered up and beaten up. <laughs> and so they made their own dance pads that they sold, and they sold really well. So they said, hey, wait a second, there's an opportunity here. Why don't we look at a musical category that's out there that's not in Dance Dance Re- Revolution, uh, that we can make the hardware for and make this a hardware and software experience because that seems to be the thing that really makes music rhythm take off. Mm-hmm. You know, go from sort of being an electronica and niche type of thing to being mainstream. And they said, we're going to do this around classic rock. They mortgage their homes. Actually, I think they double mortgage their homes. And uh, they had actually they could only make so many units because they only had so many cash and so much cash. They didn't even bother marketing it because they're like, well, we can't, we can't make more units to sell more <laughs> units. We don't have the cash. And so they went to Walmart with this big PS2 box, PS2 only. It was, you know, PS3 was coming out. Uh, so nobody or had, came out, uh, had come out. So nobody really wanted PS2 stuff. Walmart was like, that looks different. That looks really different. Let me stock it. And within a day, they were sold out. Uh, within a, or a couple of days, they were sold out. And they said, hey, we need more. And they said, well, we can't give you any more. We, we don't have the cash. So Walmart advanced them the cash. To make more. Anyway, this had just happened in 2005 going into 2006, and it started becoming cult hit. And uh, they were looking for their next move. Activision made an offer. Harmonix, who supplied the software side, that um, Kai and Charles had hired Harmonix to take their previous game and then adapt it to classic rock and make Guitar Hero with them. Uh, and so they had hired Harmonix. They went to Viacom and started making Rock Band. So Activision's like, who can make this? We put our hands up, and Neversoft put their hands up, and, they, and Neversoft took the 360 and PS3 SKUs, and we took the Wii SKU, and we went, we had to actually create the engine from scratch, in addition to all the new content from scratch with nothing that, nothing in reference, 
within about nine months. Wow. So we created, created an engine, we created the game, we did all the notes uh, and that kind of thing. And we shipped that sucker in nine months. It was unbelievable. <laughs> That's insane. Now on that, and we enabled the first kind of music purchases on uh, that had ever been done on the Wii, and, mm. you know, as direct in-game transactions, you know, on the Wii. So it was an amazing experience, you know, for us. It was definitely one of those twenty-four-seven type of development cycles mm. uh, that we had. But uh, we're really inspired to do something different uh, and special with this thing. Uh, and then that, that started us off on the road to actually building, you know, taking Guitar Hero really from, uh, it was on initially on PS2, and then it came to Xbox um, for Guitar Hero 2 uh, as well. Um, but by Guitar Hero 3, we were really able to broaden it and then scale it up. Mm. Well, the, let's look at the broader, the, you know, the wider picture. Like the industry itself was broadening by this point. So you'd already had the, I mean, if we if we go back further enough, like, yeah, the PlayStation had, had, been a, the original PlayStation had been a massive hit, got a lot more people into gaming. The PlayStation 2 had really taken off. Um, and obviously, yeah, the fact that it was a DVD player as well, a lot of people kind of, a lot of mainstream casual gamers had bought the PS2 and had things like Dance, Dance Revolution, iToy, Buzz, you know, all those kind mm-hmm. of party mm-hmm. games. By the time you get to 2007, the Wii's been out about a year by this point, and you know, Wii mm-hmm. Sports has really been a massive hit. Um, and the the prospect of all these like multiplayer games that everyone plays together in the lounge and that are accessible to people who aren't used to playing games mm-hmm. and right mm-hmm. in the and right in the middle of that you then have guitar hero which appeals to people like music is is a universally appealing thing not everyone might be into right. not not everyone's into classic rock Fortunately, mm-hmm. I am, but not everyone's into classic <laughs> right. rock, but everyone's into music. Everyone loves the idea of playing music. Actual guitars are quite complicated. These plastic mm-hmm. ones are not. You press buttons and mm-hmm. you you follow along and you join in the game. I mean, I remember these being huge. I remember having like family guitar hero tournaments mm-hmm. like around Christmas. I remember like I would by this point I would think I was living with um a couple of mates in a flat and we just had our mates over like every weekend and we'd play like drinking games around rock band you know so right you you lost take a shot right. you you scored your power you, you you activated your power quick take a shot and it just became mm-hmm. this this very kind of social thing that games hadn't been before in quite the same way like you're more mm-hmm. likely to get your aunt your uncle your grand your you know you and you know a member of your family to sit down and play guitar hero than you were to play goldeneye for example Right, right. You know, the interesting thing is that I think Guitar Hero today, if you just rank them up, it, it's not the highest selling from a total units. It's not necessarily, I mean, it was a big product, but um, but it doesn't kind of top out all the metrics from a, uh, just a pure number of sales and that kind of thing for, you know, absolute scores. But it's one of the most remembered games mm. uh, in the last 20 years. So. If I say, you know, you know, typically, you know, when I meet somebody, they ask me what I do, and I say I make video games, and they ask anything that I know of, and uh, I could list off a couple that you know most gamers would know of, like a Skyliners game or, you know, these sorts of things, like a Tony Hawk game, but it's really Guitar Hero that the lay person will remember, yeah, uh, understand. So there are relatively few that really have that kind of cut through beyond the existing audiences for games. Hmm. What is it then? Is it the fact that it's the peripherals? Because Nintendo's whole pitch around the Wii was that the the controller itself is too daunting, is too scary. 
Like, mm-hmm. um, there are just so many buttons, and unless you instinctively know like how to use them, like tutorials aren't aren't brilliant right now. You shouldn't. It's it's not an intuitive device. Like even even mm-hmm. now, even like you know the Xbox controller, the PS4 going on a PS5 controller, they are not intuitive devices unless you are to an extent used to playing with these game pads, or if you're you know, willing to put the time in to get used to them. But a mm-hmm. plastic guitar. You mm-hmm. get the gist. You know the way to hold it instantly. You know that you know, you're going to be strumming with this bit and you're going to be pressing buttons here. Like there's just an in- inherently accessible nature to a peripheral that is modeled on a real world object. And again, like Nintendo had managed this with the, you know, the Wii remote was shaped like a remote because so mm-hmm. many people were used to using remotes for TVs, for DVD players, for CD players. You know, it's, it's a recognizable advice. Like, um, I guess I, like, is there still scope for that now? Like, you know, creating peripherals that people will look at, understand, and just be able to get to grips with? Because we don't see games like Guitar Hero as much in the market now. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, the the viewpoint I have on this is that uh, it's not just... I mean, intuitiveness makes a lot of sense, right? Intuitiveness and controls and approachability or accessibility. Um in a game, it's pretty important to bring in new consumers. And some games are just, you know, super popular, but they're not particularly accessible. Like League of Legends is not a particularly accessible game, but it's super popular, right? Um, in terms of peripherals themselves, I think it's less about what is super familiar, but it, it, but if you can answer these two questions, you have something. One is that um, is it something that you can get in and get the hang off and have some comfort around relatively quickly? It doesn't have to be familiar at first, but can you get into it? And equally, or maybe even more important is, does it actually impact the interactive experience in a pretty profound way? So the way Nintendo has thought about it, and the way certainly we thought about it in the past uh, and present is that um, um, the connection to the interactive experience is super important and is part of the interactive experience itself. So the experience itself doesn't stop at the screen. It's where your mind and your body connect with the experience. And so in that sense, um, a, a PS2 controller or a PS3 controller or a PS4 or 5 game controller allows you to control, connect through those buttons to the action commands that you're doing. Like God of War feels really good through a PlayStation controller. Hmm. And so it's, it's almost like that's the way I'm going to... Because we're not out there waving swords and stuff like that. People have done that too, and they're fairly ridiculous, right? Everybody knows how to hold a sword. Everybody knows how to do a lightsaber. And we've seen those kinds of... Um, everyone thinks a duck hunt is the thing way to go, right? Everybody knows how to hold a gun yeah. and a rifle. But none of those have the cut through because of their intuitiveness. The thing is that they became, they're they not the way the connectedness is uniquely experienced in that interactive experience. Whereas when we look at... Um, the Wii mode, specifically in Wii Sports Tennis, for example, or golf, mm. it actually does make a difference in the quality of the interactivity. It does make you a little bit more connected with the interaction. And I'd say the same thing for Guitar Hero. I'd say the same thing for um, uh, Mario Kart with a shell for the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're holding a steering wheel as opposed to connect. Uh, nobody who drives with a joystick, right, on a, in a rail car. So uh, the, at least... There is a school of thought that says that plastic insert um, would give them a 20 million unit lift. Mm. Can you imagine just a little plastic insert would give you a 20 million unit lift on a game? But that, that there is a school of thought that uh, that thinks that. 
So I think it's two things. It's the connectedness. Does it really add to the connectedness and the interactive experience? And the second thing is, is it approachable and easy to learn? Hmm. We'll move on to more uh, physical elements that give you a connection to the game um, because you're a particularly interesting one uh, in game four of your five games. Number four is Skylander Swap Force, released for Wii, Wii U, PS3, PS4, Xbox 360, Xbox One in 2013. I believe there was also a 3DS version, but that was developed by N-Space. Swap Force was mostly developed by Vicarious Visions, working with Beanox and published by Activision. Uh, this was the third or fourth entry in the Skylander series? I think it was the number three. Number three. Um, yeah. So I, I, I keep meaning to do with this with your previous games, um, mm-hmm. but I get so excited about what we're going to talk about. Let's let's stop and do a little kind of montage. Like, how did we get to the point from Guitar Hero to mm-hmm. Skylanders even starting to Swap Force? What what was happening in the intervening years? So it was interesting. You know, um, uh, we work with closely with Toys for Bob through the entire creation of Skylanders from the first game. Uh, so at Vicarious, we uh, actually supplied, the, they, they used our game engine that was developed at Vicarious to make all of the Skylanders games and some of the stuff before that that Toys for Bob was working on. Um, we made the first 3DS game uh, for Skylanders uh, and uh, Skylanders Fires Adventure uh, and created the first 3DS engine within, within Activision as well. Uh, and then we did the Giants uh, game for Wii but all along, actually, late cycle, right after the 3DS game was launched, we started on Swap Force. It takes a couple of years to make these games. And so it was, it was sort of like pipeline in between. But the origin was actually a few years earlier. When we were, when we were working on Guitar Hero uh, and taking on uh, you know, a lot of the work on the Guitar Hero side, um, Toys for Bob was looking for their next gig after Tony Hawk had sunsetted. Uh, and... Um, there's a lot of interest in toys with peripherals and different ideas and things like that because of the success of Guitar Hero. But um, the real insight that Paul Ritchie, the CEO and uh, creative director at Toys for Bob at the time, he's uh, since moved on, um, um, the, he, um, he, he was really sort of a toy aficionado. He came up with the insight that, hey, look, you know, my toys, I'd play with them. Um, He's, he probably still plays with his toys, but you know, kids play with their toys, um, and they're they're acting out the adventures. Why don't we help them do that within the game? We can bring the character to life. Activision also had an IP library through the Universal uh, Vivendi Universal transaction, uh, Spyro. So as a starting point, um, the folks at Activision, Mike Griffith was the CEO at the time, said, "Yeah, why, why don't you try Spyro uh, for this? It, it could lead to something." And so they just went on a process of prototyping and experimentation and things like that and said, wow, okay, um, if we could use this RFID technology to be able to bring a, make a toy come to life, that's a sort of a special moment for a child. And I think we can actually make that really magical, make it a real surprise. And, um, of course, the industry at the time, not just the industry, but the toy business at the time is strewn by great ideas that don't quite come to fruition and plans for selling lots of toys. They just hoped, or we all just hoped, that for every unit of Scott Spire's Adventure, we could sell four to six more toys, and that's it. You know, we'd be done. 
you know, it would be a great experience. And sell just a couple million units of the first product would be success and move on. But the reality is uh, that uh, Paul really identified a universal fantasy. Uh, like bringing toys to life is sort of an aspiration that children around the world would have. And it came to life in a particularly magical way in this game. Now, again, it started as a counterbat. Uh, we, you know, Guitar Hero and the music rhythm category had declined drastically in 2010. It was, you know, three years before Swap Force came out. Mm. Um, uh, you know, we, we were thinking, hey, when Spire's Adventure launches in 2011, are we going to look at a sea of plastic here of unsold toys? But it took a pretty gutsy bet from an Activision standpoint, both Bobby as well as uh, Eric Hirschberg at the time, to say, no, we're going to make we're going to make such an excellent game, super high quality toys, and the kind of memory that gives puts a soul in the toy uh, for the child that people are going to want. We're not going to size it to the kids' market. <laughs> we're not going to size it like other kids' games that are coming out, which were just very small uh, and budget driven. We're going to make this a AAA experience, and if we do, then people will show up. And that was a, sort of the bet for the first one. But we knew that if it would be successful, we needed to come up with a major new innovation in a couple of years. Hmm. Uh, you could do more of the same the second year in, just like GH1 to GH2 is add the second guitar, but fundamentally the game is the same. Because people are still getting used to it. The play pattern is still sort of being accepted and that kind of thing. But by the third year, we'll have a couple things to contend with. Other people will think it's a good idea and start entering. Uh, and consumers will want something fundamentally fresh. So we started experimenting really early on with hardware uh, type of experiments at Vicarious. And we, would, we, we had a hardware lab. And we said, well, what about, what about this um, idea of switching up parts? Now, how could that work? And we came up with a bunch of technical designs and wires and joints and uh, sculpties and clay things. Uh, clay clay models to be able to figure out how they fit together, that kind of thing. But fundamentally, it wasn't a magical experience. And then, I was down at the Muse Museum of Natural History with uh, my daughter and her friend uh, in the, or American Museum of Natural History in uh, New York. And they were playing with a bunch of strong magnets. And they were just by this magnet box, just playing with it, clickety-click, clicking on and off uh, with the magnets. And said, wow, if we could figure this out with neodymium magnets, there may be something there that people, the kids would just love playing with mixing and matching. And then we could put brains in these toys and make that a creative experience to create your own simple Skylander and adapt the adventure accordingly and give them unique capabilities uh, and so forth. So um, that, was, that was how the initial idea started. But of course, it's just an idea. We, we built it. We built the prototype. We tested it a little bit and that kind of thing. And we brought a great experience around it. And so that's really what made Swap Force happen. Was that a challenge um, coming up with new ideas? Because as you say, like um, Skylanders was on a, a, a yearly cycle. It was, it was an annual franchise, as so so many Activision franchises were. It was annual. Right. Um, and like you said, like people kind of expect... Uh, not just more content but hopefully more innovation and like you had the slight advantage in that you were on the the alternating cycle with um was it toys for bob i believe with the other studio yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. yeah and um so yeah as you said like they can kind of do slightly more of the same with the second game but like my under, I'm, i say my memory i'm cheating i'm, I'm i've looked up the series because i remember i remember yeah. there being a different um hook each year like so the mm -hmm. second one was giants so all the right. characters were bigger uh third mm -hmm. one was swap force obviously following one was trap team where you could like 
there was a trap to- uh, toy, almost Ghostbusters style, mm-hmm. where you could like capture the soul, the essence of the Skylander, right. and then add it to your team. After that, it was Supercharger, which was like the racing one. Um, is that difficult to do? You're trying to come up with a good a good game. You've only got two years to 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 make a decent, like well polished game. But to add on a new innovative idea that not only has got to engage players, but also potentially, hopefully, sell toys. And mm-hmm. you've got a, as you say, you've got the the slightly uh, decomposing, not <laughs> slightly decomposing corpse of Guitar Hero just lying mm-hmm. to the side over there, like reminding mm-hmm. you what mm-hmm. happens if you fail. Like, what what's the pressure there like? I guess. Well, you can imagine, sort of, when you have lots of dollars on the line, you have a, 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 a pretty strict timeline to get out to market, and a lot of cost pressures to be able to say, okay, well, this is how much money you have to work with, both on a phasing of project, but also just cost of goods. How much does it cost to make a toy, and that kind of thing? Um, it, there are a lot of forces acting on on a studio to be able to perform and meet all the constraints, and so forth. Um, I think. We did a pretty good job over time, but it definitely has its limitations. In a sense, we provided something new for each release of Skylanders, but fundamentally, this fantasy of bringing a toy to life didn't really evolve, like the actual implementation of it did. But what was amazing about the first one is a lot of the children really believed the Skylanders were sent to Earth um, and uh, had to be brought back into the Skylands through the portal. Uh, and uh, by the third game, there's only so many ways that these Skylanders are going to get it, come showering down on the Earth. You kind of figure it out <laughs> that it comes out of a toy factory. Uh, and so uh, I think you know the notion of systematizing it really makes it uh, appealing from a franchise plan and a business plan, so to speak. But uh, good ideas take time to incubate. And they're on variable timelines, and it's one of the great difficulties of continuously surprising and delighting so i think it does have limitations well it worked out well to begin with uh, certainly like skylanders i remember being a big hit and you essentially like it was such a big hit you prompted disney and lego to get involved right? disney obviously had yeah. disney infinity um which no offense to skylanders but i was more interested in disney infinity i never got it but i was always like oh, i really want to get that because like, it's all more familiar ip and that mm-hmm. sandbox mode they had where you could make your own levels and stuff look fun. Right. Uh, Lego, I mean, obviously like the TT Games Lego games are just always just such fun quality to play. Like they are just, they're mm-hmm. really, I'm still playing a lot of the Lego games with my son now. And then the idea, mm-hmm. yeah, this little Lego characters you could bring in and you could build your own things and in theory mm-hmm. it would come into the uh, game. But like Guitar Hero before it um, and Rock Band, like that whole Toys to Life market kind of faded away. Um, and mm-hmm. You know, Disney kind of pulled out quite early because they just changed their game strategy. They pulled out of all games, not just Infinity. And even Lego Dimensions, I think, kind of um, tapered off. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, why Why is it like that? That fancy of, of kids bringing toys to life hasn't changed. My, my son, my son is four, mm-hmm. and he still plays with his toys if he's coming to life. He still you know, has that imagination. Why has that not been sustained through video games, I guess? Now, I think that, um, you, you know, the examples of unleashing your inner rock star uh, or um, bringing a toy to life, they are universal fantasies. Um, the games themselves sort of delivered on the fantasies without evolving it for what's fundamentally new and fresh. 
And that's sort of okay, actually. I would say it's not really a game's limitation or even a studio's limitation. Um, sometimes it just takes time to bring in a new generation of players. Sometimes you just don't have quite the right idea. So, you know, good ideas don't have to deliver every year. Um, th there are games like GTA that come out every, you know, who knows exactly what the frequency is because it varies. But GTA 5 is, I don't know, which what, what year is it in? Is it year 6 or year 7? Uh, GTA 5? Year 7. It came out 2013. And it is right. still, and we're still going to get like more versions. How is that possible? Exactly. Exactly. And so it's like, well, do they really need to make another one of those? Well, yeah, they will eventually. Um, and uh, same could be said of like a StarCraft game or, you know, these sorts of things. Sometimes it just takes time to say, for my next generational leap, it'll take some time. But the, but the idea and the fantasy are still alive. So maybe the, it, it's really the, um, how product, how much can you actually, how far could you take a, a single insight in, in innovation? How long will that cycle play out? And what is the next one? And maybe it's not continuous. Maybe it takes a little time before it comes back. Um, so that's sort of my take on it. it. It is a contrast with some other franchises. Call of Duty has an update every year, continues to have, you know, a very big fan base, you know, on a yearly basis. That's true for sports games as well. Uh, but other games like uh, Mario franchise, for example, usually only see one one implementation of a type of play pattern for Mario in a console cycle. Uh, and the viewpoint there is, hey, look, it's a super high quality game. I mean, we don't need to make number two necessarily. There are more people that could buy number one. And if they don't want to play more of number one because they're done with it, we have other things that we can offer them as well. Hmm. And so there are multiple ways of looking at that uh, um, problem. Uh, some people do look at it as, um, hey, look, eventually it died. But the reality is that um, you know all franchises have cycles. Well, your your franchise cycle point there, particularly about Mario, brings us very nicely onto your final yeah. game. I figured almost, it would. Almost like you planned that. Yeah. <laughs> Mario Kart Live Home Circuit released for Switch in 2020, specifically October 16th, 2020, which means depending on when I get this episode out, it has either just come out or it's just about to come out. So I think that means you're relatively safe and you can tell us all the dark secrets of this game. Uh, developed by Valen Studios, published by Nintendo. Uh, first of all, how did this deal come to be? How, how did, how did a, a Western studio end up making a new Mario Kart? Well, I, you know, I can't get into all the details of that. Um, you, you know, the, we do have a plan in place for communicating this over time. But uh, I'll tell you the stuff that we've already shared, uh, at least from my perspective. You know, you know Valen Studios is all about um, thinking about new types of play uh, and then building it and seeing it. And, and uh, we, we don't really show anything outside of the studio until we can feel a bit of a, a bit of magic, a bit of spark, a bit of like, wow, this is something people ought to play. Um, we try not to get too involved in terms of concept pitches and, um, uh, you know, kind of business plans, uh, that, uh, you know, lay out multi-year timelines and financials and, you know, those sorts of things, mainly because if you don't feel it in the play, nothing else works. And so one of the things that we, uh, you know, so we had a simple business plan, frankly, at, uh, at Valen Studios, it was, um, build an awesome team. Uh, 
make something that has that's sort of magical that the team has a super passionate about. Figure out the go-to-market strategy, whatever that might be, um, and then evolve it with the community. So it's a four-step plan. Now, it's easier said than done, but we set out to build an awesome team, and it turned out a couple of our folks had a super curiosity around uh, drone racing and and um, and uh, around uh, uh, augmented reality and computer vision and things like that. So we started building stuff, and we said, wow, this is a game that needs to come out. Now. We uh, have had a long-standing relationship with Nintendo over many years, dating from our time uh, with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. Uh, and um, we showed it to him. And um, you know, actually, it's on one of uh, Nintendo shareholder briefings that occurred about a week ago. Mr. Takahashi, um, uh, he had mentioned, hey, look, I mean, what we showed was so impressive that uh, they wanted to make it immediately. Now, uh, that was really the start. Uh, of it, and it's evolved with their team, and uh, I think consumers are really going to like this. It's um, it's uh, there's a lot going on uh, with that game, uh, and a lot that people really haven't seen. There's a lot of hype around AR and VR uh, that has been for the last several years, mm-hmm. and I think you know the you know it's either been a case of the vision is way ahead of where the technology could deliver today, uh, or it's a case that. There's some well, that's pretty much the case, or that the price point is just too out of reach for people. Uh, but with what we prototyped, we're like, wow, we can actually deliver something today that feels really magical, immersive, be fun with super intuition uh, and that kind of thing. Super intuitive controls, I mean. So let's see. You know, it's always uh, for me as a superstitious person, knock on wood, when releasing something new. But I hope people will really like it. I think we we had a great time making it. It certainly looks interesting, like, um, and as you say, by uh, VR and AR, like, virtual reality, I think it's it's kind of been more more than augmented reality, like, you know, virtual reality mm-hmm. has proven, like, the kind of the use case it can have, the different immersive sort of experiences it can deliver. Augmented reality, it kind of feels like people don't quite know what to do with it. People keep on going about, yeah. like, oh, Pokemon Go is the big success for augmented reality, but it's like, not really. That's a that's a geolocation mm-hmm. game. That's a location-based game. Like, the, the augmented reality factor is just part of the, the, the stage dressing, and you can turn it off, and most of us do to save on battery. Like, the actual using the the uh, overlay of game game elements onto the real world isn't essential to the core of that game. This mm-hmm. one is one of the most compelling arguments I've seen for augmented reality. The idea of, right, okay, you've got your little remote control uh, Mario Kart, and the only way to see the course is to look at it on the Switch screen. Like, you lay out your markers, mm-hmm. but the actual course itself and the other enemy players, all of that is on your Switch screen, but overlaid onto the real world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, why is it taking, why are, people, are developers having more trouble finding a play pattern that works with augmented reality than they do compared to virtual reality, for example? Uh, you know, I think that uh, each one of these paradigms, augmented reality and virtual reality, they, um, they have different sort of uh, advantages and limitations. For augmented reality in particular, the way people have been visualizing AR is phone-based. You know, you point at something and then you can render. Um, or uh, as a headset-based thing, like a Google Glass or a HoloLens and so forth. And, um, it, you know, the phone base is pretty good with AR kit. But there is a, a type of a use pattern where you have to hold it. 
and then walk around with it. And there's a fatigue factor of doing that as well. Why people haven't come up with amazing experiences for it? I don't have a good answer because we just got down to prototyping and started building stuff. And we found something compelling in a, in a relatively short period of time. Um, virtual reality, on the other hand, you know, you get, you get your constraints that you have to deal with and people have learned to deal with those constraints. The initial wave with that was, um, oh, actually, let me finish talking about augmented reality. The other ones uh, that uh, with the, with the head, head tracking systems, a lot of times the field of view is so narrow that it's more suited to enterprise applications where you have to use it for the utility of augmented reality uh, as opposed to the amazing entertainment value of augmented reality. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you, it's, 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 it's more it's kind your of job. You deal with a constraint, yeah. <laughs> like all, it's not your job and it's entertainment. You want to not deal with any constraints. You just want to experience. Yeah. Like I said, like uh, augmented reality in that, that, uh, that sense, like more people are more, more people seem to be trying to create the kind of the minority report, you know, moving things around, you know, moving elements of your, your display around rather than thinking, right, how can we make this a game? How can we make this fun? Right. And, uh, you know, for us, the focus is always, okay, we, we have what we have today. Some things we need to go get, meaning we'll design the system, we'll design the chipset, we'll design the hardware, we'll bring all these things together uh, and try to bring, you know, people from different types of expertise around this common, common vision and that kind of thing. Um, so we go to work on that, but we try to deliver a play for what's there and capable today. Um, uh, and that's really important from a game standpoint, because... The fantasy of the future is irrelevant to a person wanting to play a game today. <laughs> and virtual, virtual reality is sort of a different animal, which is I think it's gone through a wave of people going through that, like you hear all the vision type things and vomiting for half of them because you, you know the the front, either the refresh rates haven't been there or people are just a little you know they have inherent sort of equilibrium issues or people aren't quite used to the experience. So it's saying, okay, here are the things that can work in virtual reality today. And work well in virtual reality today. Hmm. So those guys are a little bit more successful with it. Augmented reality perhaps is getting into that state right now, uh, working with the constraints to deliver a superior experience. Uh, with Mario Kart Live, I think it's reframing the question was important to us. We're not doing phone-based and we're not doing headset-based. We picked a problem that we thought we could have a unique solution to that delivers an, ama an amazing experience. Hmm. And again, you're almost like, as as with Guitar Hero and certainly as with Skylanders, you you've created a concept that can potentially sell other toys. So, or like the initial wave, obviously, is just the four characters, I believe. Um, each comes with a set of markers and so forth. And then, if you have four together, you can do a proper four-player race. But like in theory, I can see this. Obviously, these these look a tad more expensive than Skylander Skylander figurines. <laughs> Um, but I imagine the concept could be spun out to more uh, more characters, perhaps um, carts that fire little weapons around your <laughs> floor. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, that's an interesting point, James. You know, I would say one, there's a lot going on in that cart, um, and so I'll talk. I would love to talk to you more about it down the line. But there's a lot going on in that cart, so it does drive the cost factor up the, the package prices mm. and the pre-order prices are already up, up, up and out there at a hundred bucks. So, uh, in that sense, you know, for the starter, like for the kit, it's not out of range, uh, at all. Actually, it's a lot of value in that, in that it is a real premium toy as well as, you know, a, an amazing game experience as well. Uh, so that's in line with the pricing, but it wasn't done with a plan of saying, 
how many additional accessories can we sell? How many additional of this or that? That yeah. would be a very, um, you know, typical business planning way of looking at things. The way the whole thing was done, it was more like, what is an amazing value for the consumer and how much can we give to them right now? Hmm. Uh, and that was sort of the uh, approach that we took. If people accept it and they love it, then of course it creates more opportunities. So we focused on that first part. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, well, going back to what you were saying, like just towards the end of that, that, that previous game section, like the um, Nintendo franchises in particular, you only have you only tend to get one iteration of it or one play pattern of it, as you say, like uh, per console generation. Mario Kart mm-hmm. in particular, there was one Mario Kart on each console, um, mm-hmm. and the Switch. I, I, technically, I guess this is the Switch's Mario Kart because the Switch has got Mario Kart Eight Deluxe which is a ported, expanded version of the Wii U version. Mm-hmm. So this is the first new Mario Kart for Switch, mm-hmm. which means that technically this is the next... I don't... The fact that it's not Mario Kart 9 suggests this is more of a spin-off rather than the genu- the, the next step okay. in the franchise, but... You know, the way I look at it, of course, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what they're, what what's down the pipe or, you know, that kind of thing, but... Uh, but the most interesting thing to me about the way Nintendo has uh, managed their franchises over time is that there's virtually a new Mario title every year. Mm. It's just a different kind of experience every year. Yeah. So that's really the way to think about it. You know, in this in this sense, Mario Kart Live is a new type of entertainment. It's one of those things where I, I think that the video assets that Nintendo's produces uh, helped, but it's really hard to describe the feeling of it without feeling it. Uh, just that thrill and uh, that, that, that core driving experience and stuff like that, the creator experiences that are possible with it. And it's really hard to, if I described it to you, it'd be like, well, that's kind of interesting. But you have to feel it. Yeah. You really feel it. I really do. So I just look at this as like a new type of Mario experience is the way, the way to think about this. It's going to be difficult for people to feel with it. Like we, we were in such a, 2020 is a, a challenging year to put it mildly. Um, yeah. like, this this is the sort of thing that I could, I could genuinely could have imagined like Mario Kart Live like a little circuit set up at say EGX or PAX or something like that right. and people trying it out there but you can't do that so you've kind of got to rely on you know fun TV ads and YouTube trailers and so forth like right. people, you've, people have got to trust you've got to try and convince people the idea is good to buy it and take it home and try it that's mm-hmm. got to be a big challenge I know I don't know how closely tied you are to like the marketing side of things but like mm-hmm that's going to be a big challenge of like you've created this new play pattern as you say like this new type of mario kart experience and the only way people can experience it or or understand whether or not it's for them is to buy it or hope that their mate buys it first and try it around their house Uh, i think that's right you know we could do a certain amount from an advertising and, and that kind of thing but there's a lot of limitations this year um the best way to learn about these things though is have people buy it love it and recommend it you know so hopefully we'll hear from users um, you know, about it in a way that's a little bit purer than just marketing it. Um, you really want people playing it, enjoying it and saying, this is the thing that you ought to do. Okay. I'm very conscious of time. So I've got one more question for you that kind of wraps up the whole conversation. Um, I say question, it's going to be a bit of a ramble and I'm going to attempt a question at the end of it. Okay. You, you've referred um, throughout the episode to obviously new play patterns, experimental play patterns, and that's something that Velen and, and you in particular have been fascinated with for years. Um, 
the sheer number of new play patterns that have emerged since Synergist back in '96. Like, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna describe that um, like a new genres as it were, where you are still playing with a, a controller and you, you know your in, your physical interaction with the video game is still largely the same. It's just what you're doing in the games. I'm gonna skip all those. Just off the top of my head, and I'm probably gonna forget some. We've had musical instruments like Guitar Heroes. We've had dance mats we've had camera games like iToy and connect we've had motion controls like you know the wii uh, playstation move we've had toys to life we've had augmented reality we had virtual reality so many experimentations over the last 10 15 years um i guess like how much more is out there that's that's the question what, what other play patterns can we find it's a super interesting question i would say it, it, it's um Interesting on two dimensions. Uh, one is when you compare it to other entertainment categories, um, it's really hard to find. Um, we see something different on TV, frankly. It's really a golden age of TV, as many people say. But for film, the categories of film really haven't evolved that much. I mean, you occasionally see sort of, here's a new type of film, mm. you know, that kind of thing. But the actual fundamental categories of film sources, genre types and things like that generally sort and are relatively stable. The same thing is true for literature as well. Um, you know, what keeps us young is that the actual patterns of play in the categories keep evolving. Some go away. Some of, it, some of them stay fallow, like music rhythm does from time to time, um, or Toys to Life does from time to time. Um, but it's what keeps us young. I think in terms of inventing these things, in terms of enjoying these things, um, I don't see an end in sight because we're, we're some people say this is still a young industry, but we're about 40 years in <laughs> and we still keep surprising ourselves. So, uh, I think there's a lot to come and it's actually the reason why, um, you know, a few years ago we decided to leave Activision and start our own thing because we wanted the flexibility and freedom to be part of that. You know, because we see that, you know, in the foreseeable 10, 20, 30, 40 years, this is going to continue to evolve in really exciting ways. We need to be part of that action. Guha, thank you so much for your time today. That has been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you, James. Thanks for having me. That is all the time we have got. We'll be back on Monday with your weekly news show. And, of course, if you subscribe to the feed and uh, scroll back up, you'll be able to find more Five Games of episodes and the Game Developers Playlist, which is a show that Rebecca hosts. Uh, it's where developers talk about the single game that impacted their career and changed the way they look at games and games development. Um, take a look, see what you can find. This podcast is available on all podcasting platforms of your choice, and you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at Games industry.biz.